Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Welcome to the show where I solemnly dedicate myself to revealing how the world really works. Thanks for being tuned, and uh, thank you for being a happy warrior, because this show is not designed for anybody but the happy warrior. This show is not intended for anybody but the happy warrior. It is not intended for those clowns and creeps and crooks and cranks that infest so many corners of this beautiful planet. It's not intended for tennis balls who are content to float down the gutter of life. No, the show is strictly for us happy warriors, people who recognize that God built a world with entropy structured into it. He built a world with gardens that, if they are not tended, will develop weeds and deteriorate into little jungles. And he built a world in which, if you don't take care of your house, eventually the paint will peel and uh, siding will start falling off and windows will break. No, we live in a world where we not only recognize the inevitability of entropy, but we recognize that God put the Adam put Adam into the world in order to work it. In other words, we are given the opportunity to try and combat entropy every single day. We have the opportunity to defeat entropy every single day. And so we realize that if we stop working on our family relationships, they deteriorate. If we stop trying to place our value system in our children, then they deteriorate and absorb all kinds of alien value systems that will imperil the integrity of your entire family. We realize that if we don't work on our businesses and we don't make sure they keep on growing, they start shrinking. Everything needs our attention. And we recognize that. And we recognize also that the decision of happiness is just that. It's a decision that we can make, and the obligation is ours. And that's why we are, in fact, happy warriors. Um, you know, last time I spoke about a Frank Sinatra song, and my point, obviously, was certainly not to knock Frank Sinatra. Uh, the song, of course, was uh, I Do It My Way, um, and it was not to um, to knock the 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 writer of the lyrics of the song, Paul Anker, and the music. No, I just wanted to give you an exercise in evaluating things that you hear and things that you come across in terms of the unshakable realities that uh, constitute our roadmap 
that make up our compass that always points at true north. And uh, I thought I would uh, look at another wonderful song by a wonderful performer. I don't know a whole lot about Sammy Davis Jr., Um, You know, over the years, I've seen many of the old shows that he did with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, and uh, and certainly uh, much enjoyment and, and, and much great talent. Well, in 1968, there was a bit of a flop Broadway show called Golden Rainbow, and one of the songs in that was... I've got to be me. And uh, the show didn't do particularly well at all. However, Sammy Davis Jr. recorded that song and he changed I've got to be me to I've got to be me, (laughs) which, of course, it just had to be that way for Sammy Davis Jr. And again, you know, a, a popular song um, it it didn't make number one on the Billboard 100 like his Candyman song did, but it was right up there. You know, it got to I don't know, number ten or something. It was it was really way up there. It did very very well, and and I know you've heard the song, and uh, I'm not going to play it because I think um, I will end up with copyright issues and things like that. Even if I just play a little bit of it, so I don't want to do that. But uh, you you know the song. You can certainly find it online. And uh, I'm just going to touch on, uh, you know, half a dozen lines in the song that I think are worth looking at again um, in terms of how seductive these lines can be to somebody who is not trained to be a happy warrior, somebody who hasn't accustomed himself to weighing up everything in terms of the permanent principles and timeless truths that have done done so much to prevent civilizations slide into decadence. Uh, Because in reality, if you think about it, it really is only the rules and the rituals and the restraints of Bible-based Judeo-Christian thinking that has saved civilization from the almost inevitable plunge from affluence to decadence. And so it is in terms of of those lasting values that I prefer to evaluate the song. The music is terrific, but um, the, the opening line of the song is whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. No, <laughs> that it's, that's a big deal. You can't say whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong. I've got to be me. That's how can, how can you think that even? You have to know if you are right or if you are wrong. That's the opening. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, whether I find a place in this world or never belong, I've got to be me. I've got to be me. What else can I be but what I am? Well, that would be a true statement for a camel or a cat or a cow or a kangaroo, but it's not a true statement for a human being. What else can I be but what I am? No, absolutely not. I always think to myself, I'd hate to be judged by who I was 10 years ago 
I'd hate to be judged by who I was five years ago. I, I think I'm making progress. Slow, disappointingly slow at times, but I think I think I'm probably a better person than I was years back and hopefully even months back. I'm I look for daily improvement. Are there backslides? Of course there are. Everybody has them. That's human. But in general, I'm not trying to be who I am. I am trying to be who I could be. Falling way short, but at least I have an idea of what my divine destiny could be. And there's a struggle to try and achieve it and to try and get there. And so the opening four lines uh, of the song really lines one, three, and four are no good. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, I gotta be me, I gotta be me. What else can I be but what I am? That has an effect. Now, I'm not saying it has an effect on you, but there are people who are going to listen to that and have listened to it and been reassured that it's okay to just stagnate. So that's that's probably the most damaging part of the song. I want to live, not merely survive. You know, that's that's good. And as I've said, if the song didn't have some really good and true parts to it as well, it wouldn't be nearly as popular. But it does. It has some good things. I won't give up this dream. You know, these sort of things are are, are, are nice and, and appealing and valid. Um, that faraway prize, a world of success, is waiting for me if I heed the call. Eh, is that the faraway prize, uh, a world of success? Well, I suppose it depends on what and how you define success. It's waiting for you if I heed the call. Maybe I won't settle down, won't settle for less. Okay, I'm not going to criticize that. But I will criticize the very next line. As long as there's a chance that I can have it all, I'll go it alone. That's how it must be. Okay, you you hear what's wrong with that, right? As long as there's a chance that I can have it all, I'll go it alone. That's how it must be. Okay, it's all wrong. First of all, there's no chance you can have it all. Nobody can have it all. Right? Uh, people are becoming aware of that. Women are becoming aware of it. Men are becoming aware of it. No, nobody can have it all. There is no chance of having it all. So retaining the notion that there is a chance I can have it all uh, no, you've got to decide what your direction is, and that's where you go. It means you block off others. I'll go it alone. That's how it must be. Really? The one way of making sure you will never achieve any of your dreams is by going it alone. Everything, every great moment you've ever had, every triumph, every success, every major achievement, every small accomplishment, whatever good you've ever had in your life has come about because of the involvement of at least one other human being. So uh, nothing could be more mistaken than this line, I'll go it alone, that's how it must be. No, that that is one way to guarantee you'll get absolutely nowhere. And um, then it goes on, Here's a nice line, by the way. I can't be right for somebody else if I'm not right for me. Okay. And then here comes the last problem line. I got to be free. I got to be free. 
and you know the music is is catchy and it goes right into the next line daring to try to do it or die i've got to be me i'll go it alone that's how it must be uh, okay no uh, i got to we've covered about uh, going it alone that's not going to work but looking at the line that shows up more than once in the song i got to be free i've got to be free uh, look um, let me explain something the only way that we human beings achieve anything in life is by making sure that we are not free. All right? What do I mean by that? Um, have you ever wondered why you may be one of those people who really feels a deep and powerful resistance to laying out your week's schedule? Many people are like this. Many people struggle to get over this hump because it is hard. Why is it hard to lay out your schedule? What I mean by that is not just a bland to-do list, because that is nothing but a, uh, a daydream. What I'm talking about is the vitally important process of choosing which of the items on your to-do list are going to happen this week, and then on Saturday night or, or Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, putting down exactly what is going to be accomplished in each hour of every day. And yes, you you know, you can build in rest time, you can build in relaxation time, you certainly should build in private thinking time where you're not interrupted. But uh, all the things on your to-do list really have to be put there. Why is it so hard to do? Well, for many people, it's very difficult to do. You know why? Because you are getting rid of freedom. I got to be free, I got to be free. No! You mustn't be free. <laughs> Nothing happens if you're free. Um, you know, here's a thought experiment. Uh, kids, don't try this at home. But uh, take a, um, a, a round, you know, say a 38 special, and uh, don't do this. This is a total thought experiment. Please, the, the mind boggles the notion that somebody might say, hmm, the rabbi said this is a good idea. No, it isn't a good idea. This is purely a thought experiment. But take that uh, 38 round, put it in a, in a pair of pliers or, or in a vise, and then uh, hit the back of it with a hammer on a nail. And what's going to happen? Well, the uh, brass casing is going to burst open like the peeling an overripe banana, and the, the lead or whatever the, uh, the round is made of will basically plop out and fall on the ground. But what are you talking about? When we've we've essentially fired off this bullet, we've we've um, detonated the charge in the in the shell, and it just plops out. Really? Yes, because it's free. You see, it's free to allow the expanding gases that were ignited by the percussion cap at the back. When I struck it, it ignited the charge in the casing, and that burned freely. And it, the expanding gases were free to expand in, in every which direction. And it did absolutely nothing. But when it is confined within the barrel of a gun, and now the only way for the gases to escape is forward, and that can only happen by moving the bullet out of the way, by propelling it rapidly down the barrel, now you have something happening. 
there is no way of accomplishing anything as long as one allows oneself to be free. And so it's it's absolutely the worst of all advice for anybody who's saying, as long as there's a chance that I can have it all, I go it alone, that's how it must be. That faraway prize, a world of success is waiting for me if I heed the call by doing what? Being free? I've got to be free? I've got to be free? Nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, it's precisely by confining oneself that one achieves things. Let me give you another example. For you single guys, the difficulty of saying to a woman, would you marry me? I want to devote the rest of my life to building a future together with you. The difficulty of that is that you're confining yourself to only one woman from there on out. And deep down in the darker recesses of the male soul is the dream that there is a new and fresh woman waiting for you around every corner. And so retaining that sense of freedom so that whichever corner the next beautiful woman steps around, you're free and ready for her. That is, again, part of the dreadfully misleading message of I've got to be me, particularly the line, I got to be free, I got to be free. That is a way of making sure you will remain who and what you are indefinitely. The only way you're able to derive the huge energy that comes to a man who has a wife and, and the, the deeper sense of fulfillment and happiness that comes to a man who is supporting and building a family is by not wanting to stay free, by being willing to confine yourself and restrict yourself. And so whether you banish freedom by meticulously working on your schedule and your, uh, your calendar and keeping to it, or whether you do it by renouncing the so-called free life of the bachelor, which is, you know, really rather pathetic, and, uh, and embrace the, the work of marriage, uh, yeah, that's what makes the difference. So um, thank you, Sammy Davis Jr., for many delightful moments, both in, with your songs and your acting. And uh, I've got to hand it to you. I've got to be me as a good... You didn't actually write the song, but you did a, sh a very good job s uh, singing it, I think better than anyone else who sang it. Uh, but there's certainly damage that's been done as well in the sense that there are people who are influenced by this and don't think none of us are we are all influenced by things we hear even if we don't think we will be and even if we try and put ourselves on god please don't est underestimate the impact of anything you hear that gets into your mind impacting you if what i've just said were not true Nobody would spend the huge amount of money they do spend on advertising. The advertising budget for big companies is huge, and that's because they know that I'm right. And that is that if they can just get a message into your ears on radio or on television, just get a message into your eyes or your ears, 
it's going to have an impact. Maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, and maybe not on every single person in exactly the same way. But once you hear something, it does have an impact. And so that's why I'm mentioning that uh, even beautiful songs like uh, All You Need Is Love or uh, uh, Doing It My Way or uh, I've Got to Be Me have messages in them that really do diminish your effectiveness as a happy warrior. So uh, have fun deconstructing other songs you encounter and... uh, I think you will be uh, enjoyably surprised by the kind of insidious lines you will find that are capable of doing so much damage to your quest for genuine success and your journey to becoming a happy warrior. Now, I will say this, that uh, regardless of whether you see yourself as a religious person or not, regardless of whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God. But whatever it is, you can hardly ignore the fact that the most influential book in all of Western history is the Bible. You can hardly ignore the fact that no book has been published as many times as the Bible. No book has been printed in as many copies as the Bible. And certainly its influence has been enormous. And so regardless of where you stand, you would, as a happy warrior, I think, want to be aware of some of the material there. You'd like to know what it says. And above all, you'd like to know what it means. And I have to tell you that I am on a lifelong mission to undo the trivialization of the Bible that's been going on since late 19th century. The German philosopher Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel um, was one of the guys who um, had this idea that uh, mankind is obviously progressing and getting better and better as time goes by and more enlightened and more educated and smarter. Now, of course, the um, nightmarish and unspeakably hideous massacres and genocides of the 20th century hadn't yet happened. And so you can forgive poor old Hegel for being quite as foolish as he was. But uh, by now, any sane person knows that uh, this is simply not true. But the, the old Hegelian vision was that since we're getting better and better, then obviously if you go back to the times of the Bible, they were primitive and benighted and hopeless and they didn't know what was going on. Well, uh, today things are a little easier to see more clearly. And so um, as a result, you probably would like to have your own access. In other words, you don't need to be dependent upon me or upon anybody else Uh, to tell you, you should be able to actually see for yourself with a little bit of help to penetrate some of the dark, deeper secrets of the Hebrew language and uh, some of the uh, mysteries embedded in it. And so for that reason, we have available an online course called Scrolling Through Scripture. And uh, the first unit of that's about 10 hours of instruction, um, with, I don't know, about 17, 18, 19 uh, different episodes. And it covers the first 34 verses 
of the Bible. Why 34? Well, um, that would have to do with why the first 34 verses of the Bible, every single one of them begins with a letter with a word and, excepting the first one. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And then from there onwards, every verse starts with an and for the next 34 verses. Why? Or uh, how can it speak about day and night before sun and uh, moon are created, before the, the, the fourth day is when we actually see the sun arriving? So what were the days before that? And when were the dinosaurs anyway? And why are there two incompatible and conflicting accounts for creation in day one and uh, in chapter one and chapter two? And... Um, and so on and so forth, these questions uh, really are worthwhile probing. You know, why uh, Why does uh, the Bible say God created male and female as a singular entity and then only afterwards as a, as a plural entity? What does that mean? And above all, what are the day-to-day lessons we can learn and what are the practical uh, principles that we can apply in our own lives that flow directly from those. So please go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and look for Scrolling Through Scripture as an online course, and read about it and see if this is something that will work well for you and those closest and dearest to you. Uh, I, I think it will. It's called Scrolling Through Scripture, and you can read about it at rabbidaniellappin.com. As I say, whether you're religious or not, no matter what you think about the origins of the Bible, you can hardly ignore its influence, its power, its significance, and uh, that makes it worthwhile at least knowing what it actually says. Because I can tell you one thing, yes, it has been trivialized. Uh, The translations are dreadful. And uh, the Bible has been turned into a bunch of uh, largely irrelevant children's mythology, you know, largely on the order of Greek mythology, except less useful. And uh, this, of course, is simply incorrect. And so I uh, prepared scrolling through Scripture as an antidote to those who have fallen for the misinformation that the Bible is trivial and irrelevant to life today. Uh, On the contrary, the fact is that uh, the Bible is perhaps the most certain antidote to the tendency of societies to go from affluence to decadence and ultimately to oblivion. It's not hard to see that process at work in several countries around the world right now as I record this message. Okay, so uh, having done that, what I'd like to do now is uh, give you a speech that I delivered to um, oh, about 300 army military chaplains. Uh, they brought um, military chaplains together from all around the world and gathered everybody in a big conference center in Massachusetts, not far from Boston. And uh, it was there that uh, I spoke to them. And uh, it, it was a talk that had to do with the, uh, the, the sexual reality of human nature, uh, and particularly uh, its implications for the military in general, and uh, in addition to that, 
uh, a whole lot of other stuff. It, the speech went fairly well. It was very popular. And I heard back from many people afterwards. So I haven't shared this one with you, and I very much hope you enjoy it. And at the end of it, uh, I'll be back for some closing words. Thank you, Chuck and Shaw. Good afternoon, everybody. So in order to introduce my guest, I really have to start off first with his wife, who's going to have the privilege of hosting a group at 1700 for the spouses. Uh, Mrs. Susan Lappin uh, was an undergraduate with a degree in humanities, she is from New York, so much perhaps to the Chief's consternation, you know what team she is not a fan of. <laughs> uh, she's an accomplished teacher, an educator, uh, and even a sailor. More on that. Uh, but most proudly, uh, she's married with seven children and is an avid homeschooler. Uh, for indeed, when you hear our guest speaker and get to know his wife later, you'll realize there is scarcely a school out there that could possibly compare to the education that they as loving parents could bring to bear. And it has reaped benefits. And she, along with her husband, are co-hosts of a television show entitled Ancient Jewish Wisdom. Now for Rabbi Daniel Lapping. Uh, he's our presenter this afternoon. If I said nothing more than the fact that he was the husband of his wife and the proud father of his seven accomplished children, uh, that really would suffice, for surely one was his best choice in life and the other his most significant accomplishment. That said, that said, we're inviting him for several other reasons, some minor accomplishments that he has achieved over his time. Number one, there are very few things that we can say in a widely acclaimed manner that something is uniquely American. I'm sure you're all familiar with Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor. Rabbi Lapid is affectionately known as America's rabbi, and that is quite a title. He's an avid voter, and through his various works and accomplishments, he has truly helped, metaphorically, many Americans, Jew and non-Jew alike, navigate the turbulent waters of life, life's challenges, as well as theology and religion. He's an accomplished uh, author, having written articles and books, and not the play on bed stereotype, Rabbi, I love this. Um, his book, one of them, is entitled, Thou Shalt Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money. <laughs> you gotta love it. And there is a single line in his bio, you can read the rest for yourselves, that I think really captures it all. It says that in addition to being an eloquent speaker, he has a method of, quote-unquote, extracting practical life's principles from the Bible, as well as ancient Jewish wisdom, and is able to transmit them in a life-changing and captivating manner, thereby impacting and improving modern-day life for the individual. That, that is truly, um, truly significant. But with a background not just in rabbinical study and being a biblical scholar, he has a background in science and business, uh, he has put out CDs, DVDs, articles, books, radio talk show host, as well as a television host, as previously mentioned. He has lectured in academic settings at universities at the highest level, in the corporate settings uh, for many businesses, as well as churches and synagogues throughout our great land, and perhaps least of all, before Congress as a keynote speaker. <laughs> With that, without any further ado, most importantly, I consider him a dear personal friend, and to note, he was the very first guest speaker who I invited when I was an Army chaplain back in roughly the year 2000 at Fort Lewis, Washington. So with that and any further ado, Rabbi Daniel Lappin.
with the permission <coughs> of Chaplain Feldenberg, um, I thought I'd indulge some rabbinic prerogative here and change the topic. <laughs> I mean, the way I see it, you've been talking sex all week. How much can you do? <laughs> or, or put another way, one can do a great deal, but how much can one talk about it, really? <laughs> and so I know that I will be anticipating your own enthusiasm and interest uh, when I tell you that the topic of today's talk is going to be the uh, uh, spirituality, the art, and the geography of middle period Etruscan pottery. <laughs> well, that didn't go according to plan at all, uh, because um, you know conventional wisdom is usually just that. It's conventional and, uh, and therefore usually false. And conventional wisdom says, start with a joke. But the way I see it is, as somebody who really admires the, the technique, the, uh, the sheer creativity, and above all, the courage and grit of stand-up comedians, I have yet to see Jim Gaffigan or, or Jerry Seinfeld begin their stand-up routine with a brief discussion on biblical ethics. <laughs> and so why on earth would I start with a joke? <laughs> but um, the, the joke itself I'm not going to start with. But humor and laughter is important. There is a reason why in the last 100 years of American culture, over 85% of comedians have been Jewish. It's a huge percentage. To say that it's wildly disproportionate, it goes without saying. A Jewish percentage of America's population, about 1.4% perhaps, uh, over 80% of the comedians are Jewish. Well, what's that all about? <laughs> now, as, uh, as Chaplain Felsenberg alluded to uh, one of my books, uh, America, pardon me, is uh, Thou Shalt Prosper, the Ten Commandments for Making Money, that um, is also part of this discussion. If for no other reason, then you'd have to be a blind immigrant from outer Mongolia not to notice that Jews have always been disproportionately good with money. By the way, I know that makes you uncomfortable. <laughs> allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm circumcised. <laughs> you know, it, it often strikes me that this area may be the only part of all of academia where bigotry gets converted into research by removing a little piece of skin. <laughs> But yes, uh, Jews have stood out in, in economic terms. Uh, they've also stood out in comedic terms. And, um, and finally, as uh, Mark Twain noted, noted in his uh, article at the end of the 19th century um, the, uh, in, for the Saturday Evening Post, he, he wrote a story, uh, a piece called Concerning the Jews. And he spoke about uh, Jewish 
ability with money. And he also spoke about Jewish, familiar, Jewish um, welfare in the family arena. He spoke about the famous solidity and reliability of Jewish marriages. Well, I wish that that was as true today as it was a hundred years ago. And to the extent that it is not as true, matches precisely the extent to which, sadly, a very large proportion of self-identifying American Jews have replaced the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with the God of secular fundamentalism. The resulting damage to both financial success and perhaps more importantly to family success is conspicuous and hard to miss. But uh, humor, why so many comedians Jewish? Well, there are probably a, a variety of socio-economic uh, reasons for that, but one of them is that we Jews take laughter very seriously. As a matter of fact, the very first born Jew was given the name Laughter. His name is Isaac. In Hebrew, that's Yitzchak, and that means laughter. But just as important as his name is, is the fact that in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, the clustering of topics is very significant, where certain things show up. Now, in this case, not only the five books of Moses, but all of the Hebrew Bible, over 90% of all references to laughter occur in the chapter concerning Isaac's birth. It's as if the good Lord is saying, hey, today we're going to talk about laughter, and everything you need to know about that is right here. Why is laughter so linked to the very first born Jew? And moreover, why is it that the section concerning the birth, the section of the Torah concerning the birth of Isaac is read in synagogue on the Jewish New Year. Now, uh, with us, New Year's is not a time to tilt the bottle and put a funny hat on your head. Uh, by us, New Year is called Head of the Year, and Rosh Hashanah, it's the Head of the Year, and the relationship between our New Year and the rest of the year is precisely the relationship between the head and the rest of the body. Namely, it is the head that should direct what the body does. And so it is on Rosh Hashanah uh, that the shofar, the ram's horn, is blown for a hundred blasts. Now, what may not be so well known is that the musical structure of the blasts, the rhythm and tempo of the musical pattern that is blasted a hundred times during the day uh, is the sound of human laughter. That's what it is. If I were to reproduce the sounds, I'm going to make a complete idiot of myself, but at least it will give you the, the idea of what it sounds like. That's what the shofar sounds like. You get it? It's all about laughter. 
some of you remember a cartoonist called Gary Larson. I hate for his work to go into obscurity. But he did the most brilliant cartoons uh, all about uh, animals conversing with each other, usually about people. And so you might have seen two cows making some snide but hysterical remark about the farmer. Um, and it, it was just funny and clever. However, I ask you to imagine for just a moment a world in which animals could indeed laugh. And how funny is Gary Larson now? Not at all. This gives us a clue as to what laughter is all about and why laughter belongs on this holy of holy days in the Jewish calendar. Why it has to be the firstborn Jew is named laughter. Well, you see, the idea is that laughter is what we do when something contradicts an accepted norm. So when a tramp slips on a banana skin and falls on his back, we rush to help him. It's, it's, it's just tragic. It's poignant. But how about when a pompous politician slips on the same pop banana peel and lands on his back? Hey, it's time for that short part. It's hilarious. <laughs> We're laughing so much, nobody's got the energy to help him out. Because it's incongruous. Laughter has to do with incongruity. Things that don't fit. In reality, laughter is the defining matrix of a world which is not random and devil may care, but a world in which there is a structure of rules, both physical and spiritual. Laughter affirms and testifies to that existence. And so, for instance, uh, the, the bulk of, jo of jokes, particularly of the less wholesome kind, revolve around sex, bathroom, and religion. Right? A rabbi stepped into a room for, I mean, you, you can see that that's the start of a good joke. So, um, yeah, sex, the bathroom, and religion, those constitute the bulk of unwholesome jokes. Why religion? Well, because it is, it is so powerful and so relevant and so present in people's lives, whether they acknowledge that or not, that the notion of mocking it is almost irresistible if you are a certain type of individual because it's there. Nobody makes jokes about the flat earth society because it's not worth commenting on. It's ridiculous. Anybody in this day and age who thinks the earth is flat, it's tragic, it's not funny. But God is worth joking about. Bathroom? Well, of course. <laughs> we get that. Everybody knows that bathroom is a thoroughly private affair, that to the extent that we even go out of our way to redefine it 
And this, this struck me uh, with, with some significance on the first, uh, maybe the first or second day I arrived as an illegal immigrant into the United States of America. <laughs> well, the way I looked at it, right, somebody has to be willing to do the job that Americans aren't willing to do. <laughs> and namely be an Orthodox Jewish rabbi who loves Christians. <laughs> I'm meeting with a group of people, and I still remember we were sitting in a hotel lobby in Manhattan, and uh, a guy gets up and says, and I've never heard this in my life before, he says, excuse me, I'm off to the men's room. I think to myself, me too? <laughs> to me, men's room means sports on a big screen, beer on tap. I'm good, so I jump up and say, I'll go with you. <laughs> even realize the strange looks everybody else was giving. Because <laughs> only women do that. <laughs> I'll go with you. This was a very rude awakening to a lengthy process of culturization to the United States of America. And uh, I will tell you, I never made a better decision in my life till I married my wife uh, of um, uh, becoming an American citizen. Uh, she likes to say that uh, I married her for citizenship. This is absolutely not true. Uh, I actually achieved citizenship alone, independently myself, a couple of years before I even met her, but she still retains. <laughs> Men's room. Oh, I I'm going to the bathroom. Really? You need a shower? Why? I'm going to the powder room. <laughs> the mind boggles at that thought. Well, what is that about? Why can't you just get up and say, hey, this, let me tell you what I'm going to do now. <laughs> Why not? Because we all recognize deep inside of us that uh, God created all the animals and creatures in the world and then, as an entirely separate process, he created the only creature touched by the finger of God, the human being. And one of the prime lessons that emerges from the first couple of chapters of Genesis is something that my mother taught me really, really well. The lesson is that there is a difference between people and animals. And almost everything in a culture that is being driven in the wrong direction is based on the idea that we are nothing but the results of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution that transformed primitive protoplasm into plumbers and proctologists. What's going on here? It's an extraordinary thing. The notion that I am different from an animal today is considered an offensive statement. Which I say, tough luck. It's a reality, I can't help that. And so 
we do make a difference between the way animals go to the bathroom and the way we go to the bathroom. We do. And we go to great lengths to camouflage the animalistic side of our being. By doing what? Expensive wallpaper, monogrammed towels. In the smallest room of the house where you spend least time. Bars of soap shaped like seashells, really? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Very much so. Because that way I can say I'm going to the powder room, or I'm going to the washroom, or where's the men's room? And I can avoid the stark ugliness of animalistic reality. And so for, for this reason, our conduct with sex is again shaped in such a way and sculpted in order to create as much distinction as possible between us and animals. Animals see and do. And human beings, first of all, they used to, they would get engaged and they would do what I, I, I think is since colonial days is already gone, and that is they used to post bands at the church to say, on such and such a date, Mr. So-and-so intends taking Miss So-and-so as his bride. Because there was this recognition that sex is not private. It is everybody's business. Because what happens to society is very much a function of that society's treatment of relationships between men and women. As a matter of fact, in ancient Jewish wisdom, we go as far as to say that there are only two types of human relationships, sexual and financial, or contract. And the Torah loves contracts. When uh, the, uh, the people of Ephron said to Abraham, hey, you don't have to buy a burial field when Sarah died. As an act of friendship, we'll just give it to you. And Abraham said, no, I want to buy it. They said, oh, listen, you know, uh, $300 million for an AK in, in midtown of Hebron. I mean, how important is that, really? Abraham said, thank you for giving me the price. And he wrote out a check there and there. Sex and money, fundamental relationships. What is a sex relationship? It's not necessarily only the person with whom you are enjoying a sexual relationship. That's the most primal, obviously. But it is also everyone to whom you are related because of a sexual relationship. That includes your siblings and your cousins. Sure, because I am here because two grandpas a long time ago <coughs> took a liking to two grandmas. And that's how I'm here. And Susan, my wife, is here because another two grandpas did the same thing. And our children are here because of the love that Susan and I have shared. So, yes, sexual relationships is another way of saying family relationships. And financial relationships is another way of saying contractual relationships. Now, one of the reasons that ancient Jewish wisdom loves 
these two kinds of relationships is because they are not flimsy. <laughs> if any of you have said to yourselves, you know, I really used, ought to call so-and-so. We were such good friends and I haven't spoken to him or her for the last, ah, well, it's, could it be 10 years already? <laughs> if you've ever said that to yourself, then you understand the frailty of friendship. Friends today, maybe tomorrow we're not. And it may not be anything specific. We may have drifted apart. We may have moved apart geographically. Friendships, they are what they are. It's not an accident that nowhere in the five books of Moses do you find anybody described as a friend. It's as if God dismisses the entire con. Look, friends are great. I mean, you can have friends you bless. It's wonderful. But in terms of fundamental human affairs, sex and marriage is the first. And what's so important about that? What's so important about that is that it has absolutely nothing to do with love and friendship. Every now and then I raise eyebrows by introducing Susan as my lady friend. I just came across that term recently. I thought it was rather quaint, so <laughs> and, and we get we get interesting responses. Uh, but yeah, marriage has nothing to do with friendship. That may develop, and if you do, if it does, you're very fortunate. But marriage is, it's a commitment. Everybody knows that. And anybody, any young woman who is stupid enough to get married because the guy says, I love you, which is just a misspelling of I lust for you, <laughs> deserves exactly what she gets, which is she's accepted a deal whereby his relationship with her is contingent on his emotions. Anybody checked into the stability of male emotions? <laughs> they talk about female emotions. <laughs> and so anybody who gets married says, well, he loves me. The net result is when he doesn't love you, you must accept the fact that he goes and marries his secretary or whoever he now loves. If that's what this is all about, he was my best friend. How could he do this to me? Well, because you misunderstood the whole deal. The deal is called a commitment. And like any other contract, it doesn't change. And I mean, we all, we all have had experiences with honorable and amazing business professionals. I mean, I've had it, I've seen it so many times, and I do have as well, uh, where somebody contracts to a sale. I'm going to sell you my land at such and such a price. We'll open escrow, we'll close on this date. And then in the interim, it turns out that um, information is released. The government is planning a new freeway. The price, the value of it has gone up. And you are waiting for the phone call from the fellow saying, you know what, I'm sorry, but I, I can't do the deal as we planned. You're expecting it. And nothing, you hear nothing, so you show up on the, um, uh, the uh, assigned date to open escrow, and there he is. And you just are absolutely, you say, how wondrous are your works, O oh Lord, that you created a human being capable of this level of commitment. I would like to make him my friend. That's right. I don't do business with friends. That's sheer folly but I love <coughs> making friends out of the people with whom I do business. 
Marriages that start with love end with law. Marriages that start with law can well end with love. And that's why the Jewish marriage ceremony is remarkably devoid of romance. Sounds much more like finance than romance. <laughs> it's, a, it's a set of obligations and commitments and responsibilities from the man to the woman. Set of obligations and commitments and responsibilities from the man to the woman. And the beauty of it is <laughs> that it can't be changed. There it is. It's as clear as could be. And uh, you know, one of the parties says, uh, you know, I, I just think we've drifted apart. I just don't love you anymore. And the response to that is, um, could you pass the salt, please? <laughs> I mean, what you told me is, so I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in this morning's headlines than what you've just told me is utterly irrelevant. I'm, I'm sorry to hear it, but I'm sure you'll get over it in time. <laughs> yes. Our relationship to sex and money is incredibly profound. So much so that I think most people would agree that any human being who has no money worries and who has an incredible marriage and family should have two bald spots in the carpet next to his bed where his knees go every night where he thanks God for his good fortune. What more could you want? Well, people might say, well, good health is important as well. I don't have to waste your time on the reams of data that link good health. Leaving aside you know, genetic things or just sheer bad luck, but in general terms, link, the link between health and no financial stress and strong marriage are so prevalent and so widely known as to not warrant any waste of time whatsoever. So yes, if, if you've got no money worries and no marital worries, you should be on your knees. How wonderful is that? And all of that wrapped up in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, where we find the entire structure of marriage given to us in the relationship between Adam and Eve, um, and, and Dr. Apple, you were, you were very, very interesting a little earlier today uh, on your correct Hebrew identification of the differences. Uh, Adam is known as the primal man, Adam. But at what point, when is the very first time that he's called Ish, that he's called a man? Only after he has a woman. Only after the woman is there. Essentially, God says to Adam, what should we call her? And he says, well, why don't we call her the female? You see, in Hebrew, nouns are, are, are very easy to identify. There's gender in English in Hebrew nouns. So uh, even you know, a, word, a, a word like a table or a chair, in English, you have, it's irrelevant as to whether they're masculine or feminine. In Hebrew, every noun has a gender. And in nine times out of 10, the way a masculine noun is converted to a feminine noun is by putting a suffix at the end of ah. And so ish, as you heard this morning, is not, no longer just a primal male human being, but ish, Adam is that, but ish is a real man, and a woman in Hebrew, isha. 
the female of man. And so God said to Adam, what should we call this enchanting creature? And Adam said, well, since I have now become an Ish, she must be Isha. And sure enough, first time we see those terms employed uh, in the book of Genesis. Exactly right. Because she makes me who I am. Some of you may wonder at the absence of my wife, if, if you may have noticed. This is by my request. You see, my wife is incapable of guile. <laughs> and her face reveals exactly what she's thinking. <laughs> now, I promise you, I worked long and hard on my presentation today. I took the opportunity to be before you this afternoon terribly seriously. I did. I did. And I will tell you that I enjoy dressing casually, but I will not stand before an audience I respect dressed in anything less than a suit and jack jacket and tie. That's not because I find it comfortable, which I don't. I do it in order to express the feelings I have to the people who have been willing to invest the one irreplaceable commodity in their lives, namely time, in what I am there to impart. And so, um, I know that in spite of having prepared to my best ability of everything I wanted to tell you today, I know that there are going to be ways in which I explain something which may not be quite as well as I explained when I was running through the material with Susan last week. And her face will show displeasure. <laughs> no, 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 not displeasure. Her face will show disgust. <laughs> another hour or two, and her face cannot help but show them. Now, because we understand the ish-isha relationship, that I am only a man because of her, I am who I am only because, I mean, I'll be the first to admit it, I, I, I'd hate to think where I'd be without her. She holds even my entire ego in the palm of her hand. And so that mere expression, because I am unfortunately exquisitely attuned to her expressions. And so whenever I'm speaking, and I speak for many, many, many churches around the United States and also elsewhere in the world. I spoke in China, I spoke in the UK, I spoke in Switzerland last month. Um, but whenever I speak for a church, I always say, I hope you don't mind me mentioning this, and I hope it doesn't stress your uh, logistical stuff, but there's an old Jewish tradition that whenever a rabbi gives a speech, his wife is placed in another room. <laughs> so, uh, in, in, in all honesty, I, uh, I, I tell you the entire truth. I, I actually prefer not being able to see her. <laughs> while I am uh, spending time together with you and doing my best to, to convey a material that I, I, I consider important enough to take the time with. So, uh, so, so that's what it is. But that's the Ishisha relationship. It's, it's fundamental, it's powerful. What is more, 
it's laid out in that early second chapter, we find that um, the Garden of Eden is this place where they married. And to this day, within the Judeo-Christian biblical tradition, whether it's Jewish or Christian, the overwhelming majority of marriages come about by the man being first at the altar. Number two, the other person has to be different from you. Because otherwise, you're bringing nothing to the table or the bed in creative terms. The third thing is that the way to make money well or to have good sex is to be obsessively preoccupied with the other person's joy and happiness. And that's exactly why it is that uh, when somebody finishes a commercial transaction and walks out of a store with a new pair of sneakers with red lights in the heels that flash when you walk, the storekeeper, as you're walking out, says, was it good for you? Anyway, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, because it's the same thing. I'll make, all right, fine, maybe he said, can I send you a survey in the mail? But whatever it is, the basic question is, are you leaving here happier than you were before? And in both situations, the answer is unequivocally yes. And uh, finally, in both situations, the potential for creativity is down the road, but of incalculable size. When, when Mary and William uh, Gates, excuse me, uh, in, yeah, Gates in Seattle, uh, half a century ago or more, uh, had a little baby called Bill, nobody knew. There was no way, right? Bill loved his wife Mary, and a few months down the road comes Bill. Incalculable potential. Nobody has any idea what could be ahead for that little baby. That's right. And when you sit down over a table with someone else and engage in a transaction, you have no idea where that could lead. The biggest deals of the century started because two human beings sat down over a table and had lunch and discussed ways that they might be able to collaborate. That's how it works. And it's for exactly the same reason that telling yourself a joke is not a lot of fun. Because as soon as you start it, you say, no, no, that one. Wait, wait till you get the punchline. And this is one of the reasons that if there were such a thing, which there isn't and there won't be, because although you can reproduce, you can clone the biology of any living thing, you cannot clone the soul of a human being. And so even if they have the identical DNA, uh, like identical twins, they will still have different fingerprints, because fingerprints are a mark of our spiritual distinction. Nobody knows. Nobody knows how two individuals in utero with the identical DNA can end up with totally different fingerprints, which they do. Nobody knows how that happens. 
And so we come up with all kinds of theories revolving around terms like epigenetics, which mean absolutely nothing, really, because we don't know what it means. But basically, nobody has any idea of how different two people with the same DNA have different fingerprints. Yeah, that's right, because our uniqueness as individuals is exactly what God said, right? Create human beings in my image. What does in my image mean? Well, that's what monotheism means, one God. Unique. Every human being is absolutely unique, different from every other human being. In a way that animals are not distinctive from one another, but human beings are distinctive from one another. So we know that obviously I can't tell a joke meaningfully to my full clone if there were such a thing, which there isn't. And I also cannot brainstorm. Brainstorming is a useful exercise. I sit down with a friend or two friends and I say, listen, I want to just run some ideas. Bounce back at me, whatever you think. Your first reaction is what I tell Let me tell you, and I'll tell you this, and I'll tell you that. And we'll talk, and that's brainstorming. How would brainstorming be like with somebody who's you? Pointless. Nothing comes out of it. And so one of the requirements of both sex and money is that the person has to be different from you. One of the reasons that uh, God prohibits us from marrying a sister, which on the surface of it would make a lot of sense, right? There's no arguments about where to go for Thanksgiving. It's great. <laughs> but God prohibited it because it requires zero effort and integration. You are already too close. And so the entire creative process of two strangers being brought together through sex, it, it, it's, it's irrelevant. It doesn't have to happen because they, they come from the same home. They're, they're almost clones as it is. So creativity depends on this model. And it's not just the creativity of a human being, but it is the creativity of almost everything. In other words, the, the act of a transaction and making money is exactly the same as the act of sex in the idea of two different people trying to serve one another, make each one happier than they were before, and through a, a process of combining and connecting, becoming something bigger than they ever were before. Extraordinary idea. Absolutely extraordinary idea. And so, the, the concept is brought even into areas of negotiation. Not everybody has to engage in negotiation. If you're involved in, in any form of management or administration, you're engaged in negotiation. Well, here's something a little unusual. What is the Hebrew concept of masculinity? And what's the Hebrew concept of femininity? Well, there is such a thing as these concepts going beyond sex. Uh, in electricity, we have such things as male connectors and female connectors. Right? And it, it, it doesn't mean that one is more sensitive than the other. It's very basic. We understand that sexual realities have implications beyond the bedroom. And so, similarly, we understand in ancient Jewish wisdom that masculine is essentially the planting of a seed, is essentially the placing of a seed. 
Feminine is essentially nurturing that seed and helping to produce the result which the man on his own could never have accomplished. But by the man being first at the altar, or as we would say, under the chuppah, but it's the man who's first there, and the man is there chatting with the officiant, the priest or the rabbi or the, the pastor, because nothing is happening until the bride arrives. And when does she arrive? Whenever she wants. <laughs> and until then, everyone's standing around twiddling their thumbs or looking towards the door. But that's exactly what happened. Adam was in the Garden of Eden. And uh, God says, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. Now, this is a very striking note that has just been struck. Because up till now, God has said, oh, that's good. He said it not once, not twice. Anybody know? He said it eight times. The last time he said it was about gold, which brings us back to money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but eight times the Lord has said, it's good. I mean, he, he seems to be an extraordinarily good-natured deity. Everything is, France is good, everything is good. <laughs> and, uh, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, this very disturbing note. Not good for man to be alone. Why didn't Adam respond to God saying, Hey Lord, take it easy. I, I don't feel alone. I get the remote whenever I feel like it. <laughs> it's you and me, Lord. I don't feel alone. I got you, you got I'm good, I'm good. No. There's a recognition right there that something isn't right. And as you pointed out this morning, again, the next thing you would have you would think is right after God said, not good for man to be alone, I better make him a helpmate. You'd think that the very next thing, the next verse should say, and God placed a deep anesthetic sleep on Adam. And um, it isn't. The next thing is, and God now introduced a zoological symposium. He paraded all the animals in front of Adam. For what purpose? Well, because God knew that there was a, a latent undercurrent within the soul of human beings to consider animals to be the equivalent of people. And so, to this day, one will hear of cases of people who served longer prison terms for animal cruelty than for murder. You will hear of people who speak about, oh, my dog is better than any person I know because my dog would never do this or do that. People really are moving in that direction. The whole idea of uh, uh, not buying my wife a fur coat I waited for years till I could buy my wife a fur coat, and and we got um, we got thoroughly castigated by people at dinner parties. How can you? And I only had two things to say to them. One of them was, I'd like to give you the address of the local chapter of the Hell's Angels who wear leather jackets. I'd like you to go talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, uh, I want you to know that your only objection 
to me draping a, uh, a mink fur around my wife's shoulders is because you think the mink is my cousin. And I fully agree with you that killing my cousin and putting his skin on my wife's shoulders would be in bad taste. There's no question about it. <laughs> but that's quite different uh, with respect to animals. There is a blurring of the relationship between people and animals. Now, one of the great things, one of the, the seductive aspects of that is it opens up sex to different parameters. Because if we are nothing but animals, then all the religiously rooted conventions that over the years have sculpted our relationships between men and women fall away. They now become nothing but quaint conceits of a disturbed people who imagine religious realities. But the truth is, we're nothing other than sophisticated animals. That's all. But it's not altogether as simple as that. Because although I understand that they, that may well be part of the appeal in pulling people towards that animalistic vision of the world, yes, it does. It's very appealing. It takes away many of the rules and rituals and restraints around the passions of life that the Judeo-Christian culture has built on a biblical basis. And you strip those away, and who knows where society, oh wait, we do know where society goes. Yeah, I think we do. So, uh, God says, I want you to see all of these animals. Absolutely. <coughs> Get to know them. I want you to see that these are not for you. They do not fulfill that deep, empty longing in your soul that can only be filled by a woman. And then we move on. And God brings Eve. And then a little while later, there is the uh, fall, the eating of the fruit, and the eviction from the Garden of Eden. An interesting thing happens. Adam is distraught. Eve is distraught. They are now facing a huge unknown with all kinds of painful realities like death and having to earn a living. And um, God's response, and by the way, in the Hebrew tradition, uh, this is not part of the punishment. This is actually part of the acceptance. This is part of the embrace. Because one of the, uh, the worries that Adam expresses to the Lord is, how are we going to eat up till now in the Garden of Eden? There it was. It was like being on welfare. It's great. <laughs> and uh, God says, don't worry. From here onwards, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. And that's a good thing. Not a bad thing. And it is from that moment that in the Hebrew culture, the word bread became synonymous with money. Which, by the way, in many languages, including English, to this very day, it still is, right? Mm -hmm. Have you got any bread on you? Remember from teenage years? Yeah. Or how about, can you lend me any dough? Yeah. Same phrase. Same concept. Mm -hmm. Because back then, in chapter 2 of Genesis, we deal with marriage and money. Those are the two things. Adam and Eve are now 
dependent upon one another outside the Garden of Eden like never before, and from here onwards, they are going to be part of their humanity is going to be making a living, making money. And so marriage and money are unified right up front there. But wait, there's more. Because the maleness and femaleness of Adam and Eve actually serves as a model within ancient Jewish wisdom for all creativity. What do you mean? Well, think about this. How is money made? Money isn't made when the central bank turns the cranks and prints currency. That is merely providing paper evidence of money. But the money has a more deep-rooted deep existence. What is it anyway? Is money physical or spiritual? Can you touch it? Well, I know I can touch the strips of colored paper in my wallet, and I know I can pat my pocket and make the uh, discs of metal make a sound, and that's money, I get that. But how about if I write you a check? Isn't that also money? How about if I don't write you anything? How about if I shake hands and say, I'll give you $10 on Friday? That's my word, it's a contract. That brings money into existence right there. Money comes about when one human being serves another human being. That's when it happens. There is no way for money to come about in any other way whatsoever. The government can move money about. It can take from one person and give to another. But the act of creating money was God's way of incentivizing people to serve his other children. That's all it is. And so if uh, uh, there are no kosher restaurants in Southbridge, but uh, the army has uh, provided um, more than enough, uh, this, this old Orthodox rabbi may well have eaten one good meal too many already. But um, <coughs> there are no kosher restaurants in Southbridge anyway. There aren't. But um, interestingly enough, if there were, and I took my wife there, one of the ways this might have worked is that let's imagine I'm a roofer and somebody calls me up and I'm just about to head out to take my kids to play ball in the park and he calls and says, hey, the, uh, uh, the forecast is for rain. I've got a hole in my kitchen roof. It's driving us crazy. You've got to come and fix it. And I say to him, I'm really sorry. I'm just about to take my kids off to the park. And I can hear God saying, Oh, I'm getting a two by four ready to get your attention. What do you mean? I really don't care if you play ball in the park with your kids, but I do care that you serve another one of my children. He's in need. He's got a hole in his roof and it's going to rain. That's where your attention should be. And I say, yeah, you're right. Thank you, Lord. And I say to the children, you know what, kids, forget the ball. This is a much more important thing we're going to do. Much more important. You know, I often hear people say, um, oh, uh, you should always be at your kids' ball games because uh, on your gravestone, it's only another hour in the office. But oh, you know, I think it's a terrible lesson, frankly. I think it's a wonderful lesson for kids to hear. You know what? I wish I could be at your ball game, but I can't. 
I've got a client or a customer to take care of. Money is the consequence of how I'm taking care of God's other children. It's not the basis of it, it's the consequence. It happens automatically if I take care of other people's desires and needs. And so I pack the children in the truck, get the toolbox, get the ladder, we fix the roof, and uh, at the end of it, the uh, person's roof I fix says, um, so anything we need to do to finish off the business? I say, yes, I would like 100 certificates of good performance. I want to be able to prove that I did, in fact, take care of another one of God's children. He says, oh, sure. He reaches in pocket, peels off um, five twenties, and gives them, I say, thank you very much indeed. And off I go. That night I take my wife to the kosher restaurant and we sit down and uh, we call out to the proprietor, two of the biggest steaks and two big plates of fries, please. And he says, excuse me, do you really expect me to slave over a hot stove just because you want food? And I say, well, sort of says restaurant up there outside. And he says, yeah, but it's only for people who are part of the club of good performance. I said, what does that mean? He says, well, I will be happy to give you a bill, but then I'm going to want you to give me some certificates of good performance to show that I took care of some of God's family children. So no problem, I get it, I can do that. And we have a wonderful meal, and at the end of it I said, how many He says, that'll be 75 certificates of good performance. That's what means. It proves that God's children took care of one another. That's all it is. And it's basic to our relationships. Money is God's way of incentivizing or caring for one another. So it is. And that's why it is that both propping that seed and helping to produce the result which the man on his own could never have accomplished. But here's the best part. And in, in this, I may sound perilously close to contemporary concepts of gender fluidity, but I'm not, I assure you, what I'm pointing out is that in a negotiation, the male and female roles keep switching backwards and forwards. As they do with humor, by the way. If somebody's telling a joke, who's the male and who's the female? Well, I'm listening to the joke, I'm receiving it, so I'm the female. And the person giving, telling over the joke is the male. And so he is giving over the idea, I'm receiving it. Do you know what's really horrible when you're telling a joke and you can tell the person you're telling it to is busy thinking of a joke to tell you when you finish talking? He's not being a good listener. He's not being a good receiver. He's trying to become the male before you switch roles. Right now, you're supposed to be stimulating me by listening to me. Your receptivity is what makes me who I am. But if you get rid of that, then what am I? And so every negotiation works like that. Uh, somebody says, look, I want to propose a deal to you. Here's what I'm thinking of. And you lay it out. And a good businessman or administrator or bureaucrat or whoever it is, is listening avidly, making sure that he gets it, so much so that if he's really smart, he may well say to you at that point, let me just make sure I've got this clear. Are you saying that this would be what you envision? And he's here, yeah, exactly. And that's a very good step because I've assured him that I'm listening. 
And now we switch roles because he's waiting for my response. And my response is now going to be, I don't think that I can do exactly what you're suggesting. But here's what I could do. How would you feel if we went this way and now the roles are completely reversed? And so it is by switching the masculine and feminine roles backwards and forwards as we move along, the result is an act of creativity. The result is some kind of deal which actually has happened. It's a real thing. It's huge. Obviously, there are activities and processes that are more masculine, others that are more feminine, obviously. But at the same time, it's always necessary to be aware of what the fundamentals are. If I'm going to give you an example, I would say, look, there are um, over 100,000 significant bridges on the planet. Very few of them resemble others. If you are a photographer and you take a picture of every bridge on your, uh, on your next trip, and you look afterwards at 300 pictures of 300 bridges, very unlikely that any of them will look the same. They may be similar. Many of them will be suspension bridges. Many of them will be uh, girder bridges. Many of them will be single pylon bridges. They're all kinds of bridges. But as a photographer, every one of those bridges is different. But now, let's say we look at those 300 bridges as an engineer. How do you feel about the bridges now? They're all exactly the same. From an engineering point of view, they all have to cross a gap. And whether that gap is a valley or a railroad track or a river is irrelevant. They all have to deal with load. They all have to handle that load in some way or another. That load has to be transferred to solid earth or rock beneath and uh, all have to provide access and off-ramp ways for people to get on and off the bridge. The bridges are all exactly the same, but only from an engineering point of view. What ancient Jewish wisdom does for me in the area of sex, and money as it happens, but in the area of sex, what ancient Jewish wisdom does is lay out the engineering principles. What any particular relationship is actually going to look like is up to the couple. An engineering principle, for instance, I said before, is that marriage is rooted on contract, not emotion. That's a principle. Now, what you make of that in your marriage, it's up to you. you it's, a free, it's a free world. Everybody can make of their lives what they wish. The only thing is, Everyone can make a bridge as they wish, but if you ignore any of the engineering principles, you do need to uh, be ready to take the consequences. Uh, very near where uh, Chaplain Felsenberg served at Fort Lewis in uh, the state of Washington uh, was a bridge called the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. And in the 1940s, just very soon after it was built, it fell in the water. Why? Because there was wind, and nobody yet had it figured out in, 19, in the 1940s that wind can set up resonant frequencies on the roadbed of the bridge, 
and if the resonant frequency matches the resonant frequency of the structure, uh, it's like, it's, you know, it's why in the olden days they used to tell soldiers to break step crossing a bridge, because with everybody coming down on their right foot at the same moment in the same cadence, there'd be a danger of damaging the bridge very severely. Well, the bridge went down into the water because they ignored a principle which is since uh, rooted in the engineering textbooks. And so we have certain principles that impact male-female relationships. They're just like the, the, the rules that impose a bridge. Every single bridge will be different. Every single marriage will be different. Dare I say, every single sexual relationship is going to be different. And there are going to be some that are very distant from the engineering blueprints. But as long as I have a clear picture of what those fundamental principles of engineering are, those are not restraints on my creativity. They are not shackles on my freedom. They are liberators. Because as long as I know what the unchangeable principles are, I can build any bridge I like. And it'll be strong and safe and reliable. And it'll depend on aesthetics and economics and all kinds of maybe the local politician who wants his name on it, whatever it is. It doesn't matter because as an engineer, I'm freed by the rules that say, as long as you keep these in mind, you can let your creativity run rampant. It doesn't matter. And so it is within the, the principles that we deal with. We establish what are these unchangeable realities? What are the anchors that provide the reliability and durability of the structure? With that in mind, I'm able to both go ahead and do any kind of bridge I like, but more importantly, I can also help people who built fragile bridges. I can also analyze the bridge. I can diagnose what is wrong with the bridge, and I might be able to do, as often happens in engineering, I might be able to retroactively apply band-aids to the bridge, or maybe even better than band-aid, I may be able to solve the engineering problems and make the bridge okay. That's why it's so important for me to understand those that set of basic principles that govern sexual relationship. Got those clear, there's tremendous utility and tremendous freedom that results from that. And so we know, for instance, that uh, the uh, the nature of the sexual relationship exclusively for children? No, not so. Not so at all. If that were the case, if my sister was beyond menopause, I could marry her. No, the prohibition against marrying my sister is under each and every in all circumstances. Children are a subsequent development of that. Children come about that way. Why? Well, God wanted a way of telling us that the biggest fun in the whole world is making somebody else feel good. And heaven knows you need that before you have kids. <laughs> We've got to learn that giving is always more fun than taking. Heaven knows. You've got to know that before you have kids. That all of these things flow out of the sexual relationship. 
If this was really all about evolution and all about biology, why then there would be no question that human males would have evolved a baculum just like virtually every single male mammal in the whole planet does, including our closest relationships, according to people who might disagree, uh, orangutans and baboons and chimpanzees, they've all got baculums. Oh, what's a baculum, I hear you say? A baculum is something that gives the executives at Pfizer nightmares. A, va a baculum would render the Viagra business utterly obsolete. A baculum is the technical term for what's known as a penile bone. When intercourse is imminent, uh, this bone, literally a bone, slides into place and impotence has vanished forever. There is nothing that would be more useful for the propagation of the species. If having children was all that this was about, then human beings would have evolved a baculum just like chimpanzees did. Because it makes perfect sense. Why would you want to leave something as important as the propagation of the species to the mood of the man? My goodness, one tough day at work and humanity vanished. <laughs> and so we, we, can, we can solve this all. And yet, God saw fit that of all the mammals on the planet, that the one touched by his finger lacks this device to make clear that with no deep, significant, and real emotional connection, without the handling of this relationship according to the engineering principles in the textbook, this isn't going to work. And sure enough, that's exactly what we're seeing today. And so we're provided this remarkable set of principles having to do with human connectivity, which is absolutely fundamental to God's message to mankind, so much so that in the Hebrew nomenclature, the word Ten Commandments is not used. There isn't such a thing. It's called the Ten Statements. They surely cannot be the foundation of God's contract with mankind, because how could it leave out like critically important things like uh, thou shalt tithe to thy church, right? I mean, uh, that's not there. Or how, how would you leave out critical things that we find uh, in the book of, um, uh, of, of Deuteronomy, the obligation to set up a legal system? You can't have a durable society without a legal system that is based on justice. None of that's in the Ten Commandments. It doesn't even say to pray in the Ten Commandments. No, in a Jewish culture, they're not called the Ten Commandments at all. They're called the Ten Statements. How many times in the five books of Moses are they called the Ten Statements? I believe it's three times. How many times are they referred to as something else? Over 30 times. What's the something else? They're called the Two Tablets. You realize what this means is that the two-ness is more important than the ten-ness, if you know what I mean. Because they're constantly referred to as these two tablets, which I'm given, there's two tablets of the Lord, the two tablets, Ten Commandments, three times, I think, maybe. Two tablets, why? Because the two-ness implies something which is, again, fundamental to our understanding of what God wants from us, which is to connect. And he gives us two beautiful incentives for connectivity, money and sex. But he wants us to connect. But before he can make us connect with one another, 
Right. And, and by the way, anybody who has children knows how important it is to you that your children get on with one another. You want them to, to care for one another. And so, how do you do this? How do you make sure that your children connect? Well, you incentivize them. You can connect sexually, and that's very worthwhile. You can connect financially, and that's very worthwhile for everybody, both sides. This is terrific, and it could really work. Hmm. But, you see, the system requires that we all get behind the principle, the underlying principle of connectivity. That's why the Ten Commandments is structured very beautifully. It's structured as two sets of five. The Ten Commandments is really five principles of connectivity relating with two examples of each. So commandment number one corresponds to commandment number six. Commandment number two corresponds to seven. Commandment number three to eight and so on and so forth. So one is I am the Lord your God, right? That's an initial statement. What's number six? You'll never forget, after I tell you this, by the way, you'll never forget the order of the commandments. You'll always be able to get it right. The number six is thou shalt not murder. Because the rule is, you and I have no relationship if we do not acknowledge one another's existence. If I see you as somebody to be eliminated, if you annoy me, forget about the relationship. It's not possible. Only if I accept that no matter how irritating you are, I can never murder you. Then, okay, then we've got the basis. That's number one. I accept your existence. And so it is with our relationship upwards to God. I'm the Lord your God. Okay, if, if, you, if you don't, if, if that bothers you, we have nowhere to go. Number two, no other gods. Number seven, no adultery. You, got to, you can't commoditize your relationships. Your relationship with your spouse has to be different from your relationship with anybody else in the whole world. You can't commoditize. You can't treat everybody the same. And so it goes. Uh, and we don't have time for it now, but you, you get the idea you can do this by yourselves if you're in any interest. You, you go through all ten and you'll see it's three rules of connectivity. And that's the principle. That's how it works. And at its root, the model for connectivity that actually means something, connectivity that is going somewhere, connectivity that makes God smile, is that model of male and female relationships. And I realize that, uh, that that's really something that, um, that each and every one of you has to do, and the people whose spiritual welfare you constantly care for, everybody is focused on the mission. And if the mission of the army had a gender, I would have no doubt whatsoever that it's a masculine mission. That's what armies do. That doesn't mean that there are not women actively engaged. And it doesn't mean that everybody in the army is busy blowing up things or breaking things, obviously. But the mission as a whole is a masculine mission. Well, that's great. That's fine. Because whether you are a man or a woman, you get the mission. And once you understand the engineering <coughs> principles, the unchangeable realities underpinning everything, then you're free to make the adjustments necessary and the accommodations that can make your particular circumstances work and the, uh, and the arrangements necessary to make sure the people for whom you are responsible can function and, to, and can find peace and, and, and hope. Yeah, it's beautiful. And that's the great gift that the good laws of the Lord gives us. 
a, a system, a matrix of principles, of rules, rituals, and restraints, essentially the book of engineering on how to build bridges. Bridges between human beings, yes. Bridges that have at their root the magic of male-female relationship. You've all been very, very tolerant and very, very kind. I appreciate it. It's been an honor for me to be here. I just want to, I want to thank uh, Chaplain Hurley and uh, Chaplain Sultan, so Chaplain Akers, um, and uh, as, uh, Chaplain Shaw. Uh, I appreciate very much, first of all, the invitation. It means an enormous amount to me to play even some tiny, insignificant role in adding to the vitality of the work you all do. It means a lot to me, and I value the opportunity. I thank you all for making that possible. And, uh, of course, to my dear friend, um, Chaplain Felsenberg and his wife. You, you all probably don't know how much of a celebrity he is in the Jewish community. I mean, it's just, you know, oh, Chaplain Felsenberg. But uh, where I come from, uh, he's a big name. So... Uh, <laughs> Well, I do hope that you enjoyed that. Uh, as you could probably tell, uh, I enjoyed delivering it. And some speeches I really do enjoy, others uh, less so. But um, this one, it was a wonderful audience. And uh, the program had been put together by a, a terrific rabbi, Chaplain Felsenberg, who's been in the U.S. military for many years and has risen to uh, significant rank. And uh, he put together the, the program, which uh, was just a lot of fun. Um, one of the most difficult things to deal with in an event like that is contradicting a popular culture. In other words, people have been almost indoctrinated into being fearful of making politically incorrect statements. And so the idea, for instance, that male and female are really different, men and women are really, really different from one another and uh, uh, and are different in, in, in very specific ways, that is a, uh, today, that is a frightening statement to make just because the career costs can be so high and in the military, it's, uh, it's become a problem. Uh, one of the things that I discovered was that although the, the rank and file um, are solid, salt-of-the-earth citizens, um, the officer corps, since the time of Bill Clinton, President Clinton, the officer corps has been eroded. And uh, a lot of the politically correctness has permeated thoroughly into the officer ranks. And so uh, when I said that, um, uh, interesting conversation, I said, you know, look, you have to understand if I'm going to be giving the speech for you, it's going to require me to say that men and women are very different. Well, they got very nervous about that. Not Rabbi Felsenberg, but some other people. They got really nervous. So, well, you know, what do you mean by that? And I, I, I said, well, they're very, very, can you prove that? <laughs> and I, I was, I was going to, Yes, can I prove it? Yes, I I, I could, um, and I I didn't want to be inappropriate. So instead of doing what first came to mind, uh, what I said to them was, I said uh, I happen to have here the statistics of workplace accidental injury and death um, in America going back many 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 years. Um, there's been almost no change. In other words. I can show you 
that um, for every single year, many, many more men die in workplace accidents than women. For instance, in the year 2019, which was uh, the year of that speech, there were 4,896 male deaths okay, from workplace accidents and 437 uh, female occupational injury deaths. So that's less than one-tenth the number. Now, lest you say that there are more men than women in the workplace, that's not true. Uh, the statistics, the official government figures show that the for many years already, the workforce has been more women than men. That's correct. As a matter of fact, it's now 57% women, 43% men. So a little more than half the injuries and deaths should have been women, but they're not. There can only be one explanation here. You know, either workplace injuries are sexist and search out men, or a more reasonable explanation is very simply, men choose more dangerous occupations. The likelihood of, um, the likelihood of, of suffering injury and death if you are a kindergarten teacher or you are a uh, legal assistant or you are many, many other categories of occupation favored by women. Um, women, for the most part, do not look for jobs cleaning the windows of skyscrapers from where obviously um, let's say there's a slightly higher chance of an accident than if you are a kindergarten teacher this is a fundamental difference so if you ask me can i prove there's a difference between men and women absolutely i can men choose more dangerous tasks women choose different tasks occupations jobs that are not as dangerous that is an in escapable truth and inescapable reality and so uh, they're a little bit uh, <laughs> taken aback by that but it's absolutely so and uh, when you read and hear about misleading statistics that women earn 70 percent of what men earn again that is not any particular woman and any particular man that's dividing all the women in the workforce by uh, uh, the amount of money they make and all the men yeah Overall, on average, men choose more dangerous and therefore higher paying jobs, more painful jobs, more difficult jobs. It's very, very much a factor. And uh, to what is this attributable to? To what is this attributable? Only something spiritual. And that's the point I wanted to make, that the differences between men and women, profound as they are, uh, go way beyond uh, biological plumbing differences. You know, those are real, obviously, but the differences that really matter are the spiritual differences, and they're huge. And um, the, the reality is that uh, there is a spiritual nature to a woman, typically, and a spiritual nature to a man. There's variations, obviously, but uh, when a man desires a woman, he's not just desiring a person with the correct um, biological attributes. Uh, he's certainly not looking for a man who's been um, mutilated and provided with female-appearing uh, bodies. No, he's looking for a female soul to complement who he is. 
and and perhaps the most i would say among the most dramatic and significant information that is provided in technical format uh, during the first uh, 34 verses of genesis uh, are male female differences and it's amazing anyway all of that comes to life in the online program called scrolling through scripture and i'd love you to read about it and see if it's something that works for you and your family uh, go to my website at rabbidaniellappin.com uh, those of you who aren't sure about uh, the spelling of rabbi or lappin uh, just go to youneedarabbi.com. Yeah, I see the word rabbis there also. Youneedarabbi.com. But at any rate, once you get to the website, you look for uh, scrolling through Scripture and uh, see what you think. Looking forward to hearing from you. That website's a good place to send me email, and you know I read them all. And many of you have discovered I respond to many. Uh, so be in touch, and let's hear from you. A, uh, that means that's about as far as we can go. I'm I'm really sorry about uh, missing last week, but here we are with uh, today's show. And until next week, where God willing, I hope there'll be another show. It should be on schedule. I want to wish you a great week of fulfillment in life-affirming relationships with your faith, with your family, with your finances, with your friendships, and with your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lapp. Until next week, God bless.